Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Hello, welcome to this GC podcast. My name is Stephen Adams. I'm the Senior Director of Global Council. And our subject for today is the change of government in Australia and what it implies for Australian domestic policy and Australian policy in the world. And I'm delighted to be joined uh, on the podcast today by uh, two individuals, both with deep experience of this, and I suspect something interesting to say about it. Tiffany McDonald is a GC Senior Advisor and former Australian diplomat uh, with deep experience in, in with Australia's engagement with, in particular, China and Southeast Asia. And Nick Rowley is a senior lecturer uh, at the School of Public Policy at the LSE, friend of Global Council, friend of the pod, uh, an advisor to Tony Blair on climate change and uh, someone who's worked and lived in Australia for more than 20 years. Nick, if I can start with you, um, can you just give us a give us a quick overview of the election results itself and perhaps why it's unusual. It is unusual. Um, bizarre is a word that comes to mind. Um, an almost stultifyingly dull election campaign about very little other than the performance of two rather mediocre middle-aged men with significant ambition. Um, but in the outcome, uh, we have loss, loss about a historically bad loss for the Liberal National Party and a historically bad loss for the Australian Labour Party as well. In terms of first preference votes, the worst result for the Australian Labour Party since 1919. And yet we have a grinning new Prime Minister in Anthony Albanese on the stage. So what is going on on the surface is one thing, but what has occurred in truth is another. You described there the Labour Party as losing in a very material sense. How is it that they're able to form a government? Welcome to the Australian electoral system, where we have the alternative vote system, where, as Churchill famously said, it's not the election of the most favoured candidate. Uh, it's the election of the candidate that people uh, dislike the least. So you always have to appeal to the centre. And the way in which the Labour Party did that was through what would be called a small target strategy, very little policy, almost boring the electorate to just thinking, gosh, give me a lot of go. They can't be as bad as the current bunch. Um, I think there was a lot of that going on. But that's when we look at the, the tactics of the Labour Party. But what was actually happening primarily in urban seats across Australia was an absolute tiredness with the classic pugilistic I'm right, they're wrong, uh, politics um, of left versus right, Labour versus, I'm a good Tory hater, these sorts of terms which have dominated Australian politics for many years. People have been very, very sick of that and thinking, you know, I'm tired of trying to reform the Liberal coalition. I want to vote for someone else. Who can I vote for? I won't vote for the Labour Party. But here we have a highly capable, professional woman in many of these seats who I'm very happy voting for. So we have this emergence of the teal independence, very progressive on climate change, pretty liberally progressive as well, and heartily sick of the sort of Scott Morrison brand of politics which uses um, 
social construction, favoured groups versus non-favoured groups, and really divides the country rather than brings it together. People are very sick of that, and that's resulted in some terrible losses for the Liberal coalition, primarily in Sydney and in Melbourne. They've lost their previous treasurer in Josh Frydenberg. He was going to be the leader of the coalition, but he certainly won't be now. Big losses in Malcolm Turnbull's former seat, um, where a very fine candidate, Dave Sharma, actually uh, lost, and a real swathe of sentiment within urban Australia saying we will not vote for a far-right, reactionary, divisive, right-wing um, political project. That's one thing that I think we learned. But also, amazingly, and I was really surprised by this, is just how climate played out in the election. A very few people were thinking about this prior. I certainly wasn't. And all my psychological friends weren't saying, watch Queensland, you're going to have a sway of, of green um, sentiment around the climate issue in Queensland, but that occurred um, in uh, Brisbane particularly. Uh, it looks like uh, you've got a new uh, green member of the lower house, a very high proportion of the vote, and people just think of the climate wars and actually wanting the government to do something clear and practical that is going to reduce the risk of the global climate problem. And, you know, that really has shifted Australian politics to the left in quite a fundamental way. So if we look at it at the top line, oh yeah, Labour's won, Morrison lost, same old, same old, crude Australian politics. But beneath the surface, I think there's been a fundamental change. Yeah. yeah. I mean, obviously one of, one of the big features of democratic politics across the last 15 years or so has been the the the, the poor performance and in many cases the marginalisation of these big super tanker parties mm -hmm. of the 90s, the early 2000s, whether it's Spain, Germany, France, uh, Ireland, um, e even the UK to some extent, the United States, both both the Republicans, Republicans and the Democrats seem to be committed to being minority parties. Is this the Australian variant of that or is it something more idiosyncratic? And do you think it does mean that the two-party system in Australia really is changing for good? I think it is changing for good. I think Australia is always, or should always be seen somewhat idiosyncratic. But I do think it's absolutely part of that broader change, and I think that's driven by a number of things, um, which I can go into, but we're not at a seminar in the School of Economics. But I think my, my, my general point is, yes, I think this is part of a much, much broader trend. Yeah, and as you say, it is going to have some important implications for policy, perhaps particularly on climate, and we'll, we'll come back to those in a second. But before we talk domestic politics, and obviously to some extent, of course, all foreign policy is domestic politics in some way, Tiffany, but can we talk just a little bit about what we think this means for... Australian diplomacy and Australian foreign policy. Um, continuity, change, what's your take? Oh, thank you so much. Um, and can I just start by saying, Steve and Nick, I'm so delighted to be part of such an impressive panel. Uh, I have been a diplomat for 20 years, but all of the views that I'm going to express today are clearly clearly my own. I think that um, it's been a really interesting election campaign where we've seen, unusually in Australia, foreign policy form part of the election positioning. A lot of that was around China and the way that either side of politics would manage the relationship with China. China is such an important part of Australia's economic story. It's a, by far our largest trading partner, but it really has been a difficult time in Australia's relationship with China. There were suggestions that Labor might be softer on China. They've inherited a relationship where there are trade sanctions across a number of Australia's key 
commodities. We haven't had ministerial contact uh, for a number of years. The advent of Albanese's election um, means that we uh, have a, an opportunity to reset, to see the relationship reset. Premier Lee Ka-chung has sent a congratulatory message to Prime Minister Albanese, which is um, a good sign. We had uh, the uh, first act of Prime Minister Albanese was to, to jump on a plane and head to Tokyo and attend the Quad Leaders Meeting with uh, the US President Biden, Prime Minister Modi from India and Prime Minister Kishida from Japan. Uh, so that sent a really strong signal of Australia's commitment to its relationships uh, with those major democracies. I think that um, Albanese has made it clear that he's, he can, he's very uh, welcoming of, of the Chinese uh, letter of congratulations, uh, made it clear that he seeks good relations with all countries, but has also made it clear that the trade sanctions on Australia are not justified and, and should be removed and that he seeks a constructive relationship with China, but one that doesn't require sort of bending to, to the demands along the lines of uh, conditions set out in the sort of 14 grievances that the um, Chinese embassy released to the media some time ago. So to answer your question, I think we'll see a lot more engagement, uh, efforts to engage in Southeast Asia. Our new foreign minister, Penny Wong, is already on her way to Fiji. So we'll see more engagement with the Pacific. Uh, we'll see uh, attempts to engage with China, but on the, and continuing the sort of the principled, a principled approach and looking to uh, an opportunity to reset uh, that relationship, I think, will be a large part of a large part of um, the Albanese government's objectives in the foreign policy space. And when you say there's an appetite for a reset, I mean, does that mean? Do you think we should expect a concerted effort to try and see some of these trade sanctions removed, or is that looking like still a bit of a bridge too far in terms of what it would require from? Australia. I think the ball's been squarely put into into China's court on that. Prime Minister Albanese has said he doesn't think that those sanctions are warranted. Also said it's not us that's changed, it's China. Uh, the Australian government uh, previously, um, in partnership with relevant industry, uh, instigated uh, action in the, the World Trade Organization on a number of the commodities that are affected by China's trade, trade sanctions, barley and, and wine. I think that we'll see we'll see that continue. I think it would be a very good gesture if we saw some of those sanctions um, step away. I know in Korea, uh, a number of years ago, there were similar um, circumstances where there were trade sanctions imposed on some Korean exports into China that changed the government, provided a, a change of, of tact. The newly elected government then didn't concede on its principles, but was able to restate uh, long-held positions, which saw the trade slowly come back online. So there's an, an opportunity there, I think. For, for China to, to step back from trade sanctions and, and those exports uh, are as important to Australia as they are to China. Clearly, one of the defining features of Australian foreign policy for the last 20 years, if not for the last 70 years, has, has essentially been managing the, the evolution of its region. China looms incredibly large in that picture. PM Albanese made it clear that, you know, one of the, one of the important things about going to the Quad was to emphasise the way in which Australia wants to align with perhaps the US in particular, Japan. What, what do you think we should expect from this relationship's government with the United States, particularly as the US appears to be on a an almost permanently escalatory strategy with respect to 
uh, with respect to China. I think what we should expect to see uh, in the relationship between Australia and the US is a really strong alliance. We're an ally of the US. Uh, It's the most important relationship for Australia from a security and economic perspective in some regards. Uh, Inward investment from the US into Australia is much larger than, than many other many other countries. I think we have that sort of natural meaning of, of minds around the, the shape of the democracies that we have and the, the view for the region in the Indo-Pacific that we share a sort of free, open, resilient Indo-Pacific. I think that, we're, and we'll touch on this, I'm sure, in, in more detail, but around the climate change, and it is such a great uh, meeting of the minds now. So I think that we'll see even more more engagement, um, more efforts to engage with the US uh, to have an ambitious and positive agenda in the Indo-Pacific and provide countries in the Indo-Pacific with practical, tangible benefits and choice about how how our our shared region is shaped going forward. And what about um, Europe and the United Kingdom? I mean, if I can introduce a parochial note here, I mean, I'm recording this in in London. Um, For an Australia that's obviously inevitably very focused on, on its region, uh, the Indo-Pacific. Where does that leave um, Europe? It's obviously negotiating a free trade agreement with Australia. The UK, which has obviously just signed one. The UK and Australia, of course, have evolved the AUKUS framework in the last six months. So what should we expect from this government with respect to its policy on Europe and the United Kingdom? Prime Minister Albanese spoke to Prime Minister Johnson on the plane on the way to the Quad. Both agreed, I think, to uh, look for further areas of cooperation and both applauded the, the UK-Australia free trade agreement and recognise the importance of the UK's accession bid to the comprehensive and progressive trans-Pacific partnership, the CPTPP. Uh, so I think there's going to be a lot of ongoing engagement. Uh, the Labor government has reiterated its support for AUKUS, uh, which provides another avenue of engagement with the UK. You know, It's um, typical for Australia any Australian government to be looking at the Indo-Pacific and looking to its region, that makes sense, that's our neighbourhood, but we, we're, we're smart enough and strong enough as a country to look to our other relationships and to build on those particularly countries that share such vision, similar visions about how the region and the world should order itself. The European Union, uh, you're right, the, the free trade agreement will be another opportunity to build uh, on Australia's really broad network of free trade agreements uh, almost at 90% coverage now. We're a free trade loving country. One in five jobs derive from exports. It makes sense that the Australian government prosecutes uh, that agenda and I think that'll be something that we should expect to, to see more activity on um, in the future. Okay, so obviously, well, perhaps a fairly high degree of continuity, albeit in a world in which the external environment is evolving quite quickly and the geopolitical stakes, I think, arguably... Uh, incrementally ratcheting up. Nick, let's talk about domestic policy a bit. Um, one area where probably we wouldn't expect a lot of continuity, you've certainly implied that is climate policy, maybe uh, something about that, but then other areas where you think um, we can expect to see interesting material change in the way Australia does political business. Tiffany, I thought what you were saying was extremely interesting. Um, I suppose I'd reflect a little on what you shared and simply share with the listeners that I think that Australia's position in the world and Australia's foreign policy is going to come become a good deal more serious. We're not going to have um, text, message, communication between the President of France and the Prime Minister of Australia 
leads to the media. I think that Penny Wong is an extremely impressive foreign minister, and she has got some really, really smart and interesting people around her. So I just think that Australia is going to be a grown-up figure on the international. Can you just give us a bit of a, a bit of a pin portrait of Penny Wong? What, what is her what's her hinterland? Uh, she's from South Australia. Um, we worked together for a couple of years when she was working in the New South Wales state government. That was when she was in her 20s. We were working on a really quite contentious forestry policy and every male in the room deferred to her in terms of her expertise on what was quite a technical policy challenge. She is highly intelligent. She uh, was born the first foreign minister born outside of Australia. Uh, she's from Chinese heritage. Uh, she grew up in South Australia, and she's a very, very impressive. Okay, so one to one to watch for sure. Totally, totally, and the symbolism of, of having Australia represented by someone like Penny, I think, will be very important um, in, 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 in itself. And I, I just think when it comes to our relationships with China or anybody else, the government is going to want to take the heat out of those relationships and actually work on the relationship in a serious way rather than signal superficial uh, positions which are essentially in the past I think were playing largely to a domestic audience. The reason why certain statements were made about China or anyone else was how it played domestically rather than what it actually meant internationally. So I think that there will be a real change of tone which will be more than just communication. I think there will be some serious heft that uh, lies Other areas where you think, we, well, just areas you think we should be watching for interesting developments? I think that there are four. Um, I might say a little bit about each of them and then you might want to ask me further questions or whichever you think would be of most interest to the listeners. But I would maybe just offer a bit of a preamble in terms of thinking about the new chief executive of the country, Anthony Albanese, who himself looks like a, a pretty... Average politician, really. Albo, ScoMo, they both support rugby league teams. They both drink beer. You know, they're both kind of affable. They seem like, you know. Did you say Albo, ScoMo? Albo is what Albanese has been called for many years. It's a false familiarity. Scott Morrison was always Scott Morrison before he, in his rather, shall we say, marketing-focused way, decided that he wants to be called Scoma. This will be the idiosyncrasy of Australian politics. You're yes, referring to I, I refuse to comment. <laughs> it, it, it will indeed. Um, Anthony uh, is someone who isn't that interested in policy per se, but is very focused on government actually being able to achieve things and do things. His great mentor uh, was a minister under the Hawke government called Tony Wren a former boxer who walked along the Kokoda Trail, whose political autobiography was called Straight Left, because that's what he used to throw. And you would say, gosh, what a crude figure. But uh, Tom was, who I knew well, was a great mentor to Anthony. And I think that he was a lot smarter than people knew him credit for. And... Um, Anthony himself was a very tribal politician. Indeed, he used to be known for branch stacking and representing the left and who's up and who's down and who's in, who's in, who's in all of the game of politics. He has a, a pretty narrow hinterland, Anthony Albanese. But I think he's got the political smarts 
He was leader of the House when Julia Gillard was Prime Minister in minority government, and that was a government that passed more legislation than any post-war government. Now, that takes skill, and it takes backroom skill and negotiation skill, and Anthony can, can demonstrate all of that and will need to, given the prevailing politics. But he will also know that there is the cut and thrust, there's the crudity, there's the newspaper headlines, there's the latest figures that come out. But historically, governments are not really remembered for that much. And although it was quite a limited campaign, behind that, there were some really clear issues where there was a complete difference of perspective uh, between the government and the opposition. One of them was climate, and I can return to that. The other was gender equity, funding for childcare, and also creating pay equity between men and women, very important. The other was a commitment to establishing an integrity commission. I think, again, that played very well in the electorate because the Prime Minister clearly had been channeling funds, and this is on the public record, to marginal seats for basketball courts and you know, football arenas and everything else. Um, so a new integrity commission um, I think will be a very important and positive change in the Australian system. And that will work how? Well, Australia sort of almost specialises in this largely because it's experienced a few problems with political corruption. The first um, independent commission against corruption was established by the Liberal National uh, Government in the state of New South Wales. And that has led to three premiers losing their job because of their relationships with various figures. Um, we're not talking about Mayor Daly in Chicago here, but we are talking about corruption. The powers that that commission has, I think, will be very similar to the powers that the new National Integrity Commission will have in, in, in terms of being able to establish rigorous investigations and have investigatory powers, um, but not being able to legally prosecute. Essentially, that they'll investigate, they'll have findings, and then they, if there's anything that needs to be legally prosecuted, um, that, 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 that's, that's for the courts. Um, but establishing that, so I think, will be a genuinely enduring change in the way in which um, Australia does politics. And um, the next, I think, really, really important change will be a voice for Aboriginal Australians. Um, there's been a whole process through the Uluru Statement, which was pretty much representatives from across Australia, Aboriginal communities across Australia, concluding uh, in 2018 that uh, they wanted a voice, they wanted to be heard formally within the constitution and have a voice to parliament in terms of their perspective uh, on policy. And I think that that has enormous symbolic importance uh, for a country that has battled um, with its accommodation with its first people. We go into that history, but it's not a very pleasant one. Um, and I think that that's something that this new government is very, very keen to resolve. Um, and I think it will be something that will be both recognised and enduring important. And on climate change, what do we like to, I mean, you made the, the observation at the start that one of the interesting dynamics in this election has been the emergence of a block of independents, um, the, the teal independents who uh, are, are foregrounding climate policy. Um, in many ways, a surprising performance by the, the Greens, not least in listeners may not realise just how unusual, or how unusual it would have been perhaps five years ago to describe a, a green breakthrough in Queensland. But that is, that is, that is really quite a turn up. To what extent, and, and that block are presumably going to be key in terms of a majority for the, Al the Albanese government. So to what extent is that going to drive 
really material change on Australian climate policy? And to what extent is that likely to translate into a changed international posture from Australia as we as we look forward to say COP twenty seven? Um, look, Anthony Albanese previously was Shadow Environment Minister when the great kind of symbol of one's bona fides on climate change or not was whether or not one believed that the country should ratify the Kyoto Protocol. He personally is quite across um, the issue, which I think is good. But I think of all of the four things that I shared in terms of the domestic policy agenda, I think climate will remain the hardest because you... Whether we have a, a small majority or a minority Labour government, um, it cannot have a tin ear to the rise of the two independents and it cannot have a tin ear to the rise of the Greens, particularly in Queensland. That is going to have to result in a serious policy uh, shared. Um, in many ways, we saw the sort of heralding of this back in the 29 election when the former Australian uh, Prime Minister Tony Abbott lost his seat to an independent, a highly articulate independent in a wing called Zoe Stegel, who had a sort of rather interesting career mix of being an Olympic skier as well as being a lawyer and a very, very intelligent woman who was extremely progressive on climate, who herself has tabled a climate change um, uh, bill before the Australian Parliament to help achieve um, the sort of almost locked-in uh, policy context that you have in the UK with the Climate Change Act in 2008. My view is the Greens, the Teal Independents will, will be pushing for that legislation. I think that would be a very positive thing. But how that plays out in terms of the politics of Queensland, in terms of the positioning of the Labour Party, I, 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 don't, I don't yet know. But I think that's going to be very hard. I think the politics of climate change is also moving away from the technical. A lot of people will go, and it just said something about legislation in the UK and whatever. Well, I think in Australia now, it's no coal, no new coal, and it's no new gas. No new coal and no new gas is quite an easy thing for the Greens to say. It's probably a pretty easy thing for independents to articulate as well, because they don't bear the consequences of that. Whereas the Labour Party and the government most certainly will. And it's the extent to which the politics, the independents and the Greens can actually get all they can and get moved towards uh, that, that outcome. And that's going to be difficult and involve trade-offs and very, very difficult um, decisions. Um, and it will be a great test of Anthony Albanese and the team around it. Can I just add um, to those comments, Nick, the, around the credentials of, the, of this Labor government uh, and its ability to deliver on uh, climate change in an international stage? I remember being in um, Bali when Kevin Rudd um, was elected as Australia's Labor Prime Minister on a, a strong climate action platform to made the announcement to uh, ratify Kyoto uh, very shortly after his election, Penny Wong was his climate change minister. Uh, I can remember hearing from many sources how impressive she was in that environment um, at the COP, mm. it was COP 13 at the time. But, you know, so they bring, the, this government brings that heft of not only the negotiating experience that you talked about um, and having to work with minority governments previously under Gillard, but also on the international stage and, and particularly on, on climate change. And, and the diplomacy of climate is, is, is enormously important in Australia. 
During the whole Howard period, there was a view that we will do no more than the US administration, we must remain lockstep with the US administration on climate. And that also serves our political economy interests as well. I think there's very much a view that we should remain lockstep with the United States on these issues. And the position of the United States has changed fundamentally. And I think both Anthony Albanese and Penny Wong will be looking to use climate as a, as a way of indicating that Australia actually wants to step up in a creative way to start shaping and helping inform the international policy response to global climate. In working at the NSC, I'm just again reminded that whenever you're on a call in relation to international climate policy and you're speaking to the Asian Development Bank or you're speaking to the European banks or anyone else, I mean, I'm not just saying this because I'm dual Australian national, but my students who come from all over the world go, Nick, do you, do you pick those Australians on those calls? Do you know them all? And they go, no, I don't. It's just that there's a massive Australian diaspora of incredibly smart people who care deeply about how it is we respond to global climate change, and they haven't been able to get a job in Canberra or anywhere else no. for the last 15 years. Yeah. So even some of those people choose to come back and help build what a progressive policy agenda might be. Yeah, I mean, the, the point about tying Australian climate policy to the United States, of course, is going to run into the, the challenge we all have to deal with, which is the prospect of American policy on this essentially changing every four years. But from, can I take from what you're saying is that we, we shouldn't necessarily es- expect a change of government on these terms to translate immediately and fundamentally into a changed, say, international posture at COP27, in part because there's quite a lot of domestic consensus building and bargaining that needs to happen first? Or do you think that in some ways the government, the new government's likely to try and use climate diplomacy to actually get out in front of and shape the domestic debate? Uh, look, I think the second, and I think that it's a lot easier on climate to be very clear on what questions and how questions are always a, a, lot, harder, harder, yeah. a lot harder. And just because we have a new Labour government in Australia, it doesn't actually make the task easier, it solves the toxic politics, and I think that that is now going to shift. I think that notwithstanding who might be the leader, the new leader of the opposition, I think there has to be recognition of the right of politics that they've got to get away from the sort of climate wars whereby um, when you commit to a net zero target, you produce a brochure and you give a speech, but you actually use zero policy leaders to help achieve it. I think we're going to be moving away from that in Australia, and I think that's a genuine. Okay, so uh, I mean, what, one final question, um, and maybe maybe to both of you uh, around um, uh, the investment environment. I mean, this is a you know, this is a GC podcast, so at some point we need to we need to come back to the question of um, what investors and businesses should be making of a change of government. I think probably as a rule of thumb, you look at a government like this, minority government, dependent on a block of. Um, uh, of, of independent um, or small party votes, um, potentially quite a lot of divergence between the kind of core base positions of the Labour Party and and some of these uh, these votes on which it'll depend. And you would say uncertainty, volatility. I don't want to give away the punchline, but from talking to you before the podcast, I know you don't think that's the case. So explain why, Nick. I don't think it does. I think we've seen a fundamental shift here. And I think for any investor who's looking at investment in the Australian economy, I think prior to the election, when you had a majority right of centre government, uh, it, you could probably have a bet each way on coal, gas or renewables and low carbon because they were having a bet each way. 
The policy settings were almost non-existent. The rhetoric was all brand new technology. You're not going to get that new technology unless you have policy incentives in place. And I think that for any investor thinking about putting some money into the Australian economy, I think almost without doubt, and this is obviously your GC is a highly sophisticated strategy consultancy, and I defer to your expertise, but I would say that I wouldn't be putting money into coal, I wouldn't be putting money into gas, I wouldn't be putting money into new high-carbon infrastructure anywhere in Australia. I would be picking renewables and I would be picking new ways of demonstrating low-carbon innovation because the government will be so hungry for symbols and signals to communicate that this is real. It's not green sanctimony. It's real infrastructure businesses, and it's, it, is, it is a meaningful future that means employment, security, stability in the economy. So um, I, I, I haven't looked at the numbers, and I haven't interrogated the detail, and I haven't spoken to uh, people around the new uh, ministerial team in, in Australia, but that's certainly my take on it. Tiffany, would you agree with that, an element of stability, even with a nominally weak government? Firstly, I guess the, um, the Labor government hasn't, uh, the, the, the votes are, are still being counted. So it may be that it, it, it gets across the line and, and holds power in majority. It doesn't mean that it won't have to negotiate uh, with the, the, the crossbench. Of course it will. But And I think that the messages have been clear from the outcomes of this election that on climate, people want action, but also they want certainty. I think the Labor government has set out, you know, set out a very detailed um, policy platform, powering Australia costed analysis. It made it very clear that the first thing it would do is is up, upgrade our 2030 target up to 43%. What it hasn't done is expressly ruled out new coal or new gas, and I think it's it's going to be that's going to be the where the rubber hits the road and it needs to negotiate uh, that um, tension between the the economy um, and action on climate change and it will still form a, a part of Australia's economy, the resource sector, and, and the government knows that it has to deliver outcomes uh, not only on the sustainability agenda but the, on the economic agenda. I mean, it's interesting from Nick's list of kind of things to watch in domestic politics there. I mean, clearly you can't talk about decarbonisation and net zero targets without talking about the foundations of the economy uh, to, to a large extent, although I also take Nick's point about the tendency in politicians to push those how questions off into the future and focus on the focus initially on the kind of the what at the level of the target. But um, those other issues, as as important as they are, they don't necessarily go to the kinds of changes in the business environment that might register for you know for a for, for a for a GC for a GC uh, for a GC client or a GC audience. Okay, exit question to both of you. Uh, quick answer. Let's assume this government lasts term. Um, what are we going to remember it for? Uh, Nick, domestic policy, Tiffany, foreign policy. Nick. I think great. I'll just reiterate the, the points that I've made and maybe I'll, I'll, I'll put them in, in, in a list in terms of ease of deliverability. So I think the easiest one to deliver is a new integrity commission. I think that that would be a really positive and enduring thing. I think the second easiest thing will be to pursue a consistent policy agenda around gender equity. I think that would be a really, really positive thing, which would be extremely meaningful for the way in which politics is conducted in Australia. And I think the third easiest thing will be to legislate a voice for first Australians. Still challenging, but I think that that will be something that this government over the next three or so years will, will be 
you know, that's a, a really fundamental change, which, which will be of historical significance. And the fourth, and I've spent many, many years working on the global climate problem, so you'd say, expect to say it's the biggest or whatever, but it is super, super important. I think that will be the hardest, but it can't be as bad as it has been. So I remain a temperamental optimist. Temperamental optimist. Tiffany, foreign policy. The one thing we'll remember from the Albanese Penny Wong. Well, I mean, they're, they're not even a week into their um, into their um, governing, and they've already uh, engaged with the the U.S. president, the Prime Minister of India, the Prime Minister of Japan, and Foreign Minister Wong is on a plane uh, to Fiji. Uh, I think it's very clear that they're they're going to be very committed to engagement uh, and engaging constructively. Uh, and really get taking Australia um, and its policies, whether it be on Indigenous issues or climate issues, back out to the world, the world stage, and 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 engaging in a, a constructive um, uh, manner uh, to promote Australia's interests, obviously first and foremost, but um, also I think to just um, create that labyrinth of, of networks and engagements across the across the region. So in one word, engagement. Engagement. Great. Okay. Well, clearly lo- lots to watch uh, and an interesting and uh, almost certainly important change uh, in the leadership of, of a key regional actor uh, in the, in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, thanks to you um, uh, for joining as always, and we'll see you soon. For more insights, blogs, and analysis, you can visit our website, www.global-council.com, and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.